time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour. Whether you want to uh, uh, give a nod to Black History Month or you're just a fan of old movies the way that I am, uh, my next guest will be interesting as she uh, has just written a book about Josephine Baker. That may not be a familiar name to you, but it probably should be. Josephine. The uh, title of the book is Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison, and, or Prism, rather, and it's um, written by uh, Terry Simone Francis, who teaches film studies courses and directs the Black Film Center and Archive at Indiana University. She joins me now by phone, and um, Terry, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you? I, I'm doing very well, um, all things considered. <laughs> these mm. days, these days, it's it's hard to know what to what to say and how to respond. I'm Thank, I'm yeah. like a lot of people. I'm anxious. I'm anxious to get out and go to the movies. <laughs> mm. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's nice the the convenience of streaming at home, but uh, it's it's not quite the same experience. Um, what is significant about Josephine Baker. Uh, there are so many things in not just film history, but, but even black film history. Um, why Josephine Baker, Terry? Yeah, I mean, there are many registers of answers to that. Um, I think the, the most important is Josephine Baker is important for being Josephine Baker. Um, a woman who, a young woman in the 1920s who took a risk in moving to an entire other 
world, an entire other language and culture and understanding of herself. And, um, and it worked, you know, in certain ways. So, I mean, Josephine Baker is known as, um, as a celebrity. Um, she's known as a French music hall, um, performer and entertainer. She had a 50 year career. And my interest in her is in just a, a little bit of that time that she spent as a film actress in the 19 uh, 30s, well, the 1927, 34, and 35 primarily um, as this kind of like illuminating um, uh, moment in her career that I think helps us understand some of the broader concerns, you know, in her life. It, would she, uh, at least her films, would that have predated, uh, for example, Lena Horne in in Stormy Weather. Yeah, yeah. In you know, in the beginning was Josephine Baker, and you know, and all of the the great entertainers that came after her in some way played homage. Diana Ross performed as Josephine Baker. Um, today's Beyonce performed as Josephine Baker. So she's she's really the first um, to star in. Um, in a big production and to, and to star um, for, I think for us, if we look at just the U S you can think about the race films of Oscar Micheaux and the great actresses of those films, Evelyn Freer and others. Um, you could think about somebody like Nina Mae McKinney um, who performed in uh, Gore in Vidal's um, Hallelujah in 1933, but Baker's, 1927 French film does circulate in the U.S. Um, in the 1928-1929, so it's a very early. This is always an awkward area to talk about, but I know with with mm-hmm. black and white music, there were literally different radio stations, radio stations for black audiences mm-hmm. and for white audiences, and very mm-hmm. little crossover between the two. Was it like that in, in uh, motion pictures? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yes and no. There were definitely segregated um, Jim Crow era theaters, and the race films uh, thrived in that context. Yeah. Um, these are films that were made um, mostly by um, independent black directors. I mentioned Oscar Micheaux a second ago. But there's also um, Richard Norman, who is a white guy out of Jacksonville, um, who's making films in Chicago and saw the, saw the potential of black cast uh, genre films. Uh, so he made like this great movie called The Flying Ace, which is a, um, an aviation film um, inspired by Bessie Coleman. Um, but an audiences were segregated within theaters so that um, the, uh, there was something called the Midnight Ramble. And that was a segregated time, but also referred to the balcony or back of the room seating uh, for uh, black movie going patrons. So it was, you're right, it was awkward, it was fraught, it was violent, um, it, this you know, era of segregated film, and yet we have this production, um, and a number of my colleagues, um, Jacqueline Stewart and Kara Cadu, have written great books about 
the ways that African-American moviegoers and movie makers together envisioned their freedom, their modernity, their, you know, like their leisure and pride um, through the movies, even during Jim Crow. In a lot of early film, um, and I've seen so many of these these uh, mm-hmm. depictions of black people in movies, prim- mm-hmm. primarily made by white filmmakers, and they're very cartoony. You know, yeah. you know, like like um, oh gosh, now I'm embarrassed because I can't think of her name, but the character, uh, the black maid in um, Gone with the Wind. You know, we oh, played played by Butterfly McQueen. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> I that I should know that name off the top of my head, but I'm always terrible with okay. names. Oh, um, that's okay. But I got you. but there were these, you know, they were maids or. Um, you know, bellhops and, and, you know, very much in servant types of positions. Did Josephine Baker work intentionally or unintentionally against some of those stereotypes? Oh, no, it was quite intentional. One of her central concerns in entering into the movies was that she wouldn't play what she called mammy roles. And it is, yeah. So I'm glad you said that. I, I was avoiding that phrase. Yeah. I mean, I, so I'm of two minds about this. So I, uh, I really, I love Butterfly McQueen and, um, and Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers and all the great black actresses who, um, who performed in these, uh, in these great, in these roles and in, in, in these great films. And the, the way I mean, but I think that I might be reading them in some ways against the grain, and I'm also thinking about the women themselves who are doing this work. The They're fact they work. were even out there working. That's it. And when you know Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen appeared in Gone with the Wind, they were celebrated in much of the black press just because they were in this huge production. Um, but there was at the same time, criticism of the limits of these roles and, um, and you know, with Baker being one of those. And she, um, but, she, but she was also in her own films I and mean, not entirely able to, um, to fully star in her film. She does have top billing in Siren of the Tropics, for example. But, you know, the Baltimore Afro-American said, you know, she's in this love story and this guy is not even making an effort. This is Josephine Baker. What kind of, what is this film? And so they found her role to be actually servile in a different way. And so, um, and she also wanted to be in films where she, that were love stories, you know, where she did get the guy. And in her films, she is, in fact, marginal to the love story that's going on um even though she, her role might be somehow do you know what I mean like helping the the two lovers get together but it's it's a little sad the way that her character um wants to be part of the movie and as an actor and as Josephine Baker she's already super famous by the time she's in these films she's the reason they're being made 
and yet she is um, not, I wouldn't say superfluous, but she's almost being undermined by the narrative of her own films, in my view. And she did not love being in the movies in the end, even though I think she looks great in them. And I wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> so I was going <laughs> to elevate that work. <laughs> it's almost like a letter to Josephine. Well, you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's really good. You should write a book about that. Yeah, um. <laughs> it's a 200-page uh, letter. <laughs> um. You know, one of the things that, that I want to talk about, and I think I'll I'll save it for the next segment and see if I can sure. come up with something to, to take us up to the break. And I hope you'll stick mm-hmm. around so we can we can talk some more about this. Um, yeah, no, I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. The um, was she outspoken or was she? Um, really too mm-hmm. concerned about her profession to risk being outspoken she was outspoken she was sometimes outspoken in ways that were that i think a lot of people today would be like oh no Jessie, let's just move on from that moment um but then she was so she had a 50-year career so she says a lot of things and does a lot um, she's probably best known for the desegregation work that she did in Miami when she refused to perform to segregated audiences in Miami Beach at the Copa City. And, um, and she, and they relented and, um, and she performed to, you know, some of the first integrated audiences there and the, um, NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, designated May 20th um, as Josephine Baker Day in honor of her work. Um, she addressed the March on Washington in 1963. Would she have and, considered herself um, an, an actor or an actress? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I guess I've used the word actor, like, but because that's the probably, way women yeah. want to be, women in film want to be referred to now as right. actor. But at that time, would, yeah. she, would she have considered herself an actor or an actress? You know, I think Josephine Baker thought of herself as an artist. Uh, and, excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, as, an, as an artist, and, um, and she worked in the theater. When you know, when, in later interviews, when she refers to her career, she always talks about it as my life in the theater. So she would be, been more likely to consider herself an entertainer or an artist than specifically yeah, so. an actor or actress. Yeah, because you know she did these. She did it. It's. I mean, I, I and I'm drawing this from interviews that she did in the late '60s. You know, she just didn't love being in the movies and so that didn't end up being a part of her life uh i mean a part of like her own story about herself but terry she, i hate to interrupt yeah. but i have to put a comma here and we'll pick this up after uh, after sure. i take a short break i'm gonna let the uh, broadcast partner squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break for those that are streaming mm-hmm. the show we have some messages as well and we'll be right back Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Tom Summer. 
Program.com. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the um, uh, director of the Black Film Center and Archive at Indiana University with a new book called Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison. I keep saying prison. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. reading that wrong. Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism, written by Terry Simone Francis. And I know you came up with that title, Terry, uh, just to um, trip me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it does capture something of what we were just talking about, right, um, in the earlier segment that Baker entered into these um, this medium that where the, the the images, the stereotypes, the tropes, the setup is kind of there, and there's a degree to which she's able to be free within it, but not entirely free of it. And is she that, better? I, is she better yeah. remembered for her her uh, film appearances than all of the other work that she did? But no, I actually think she's not remembered for her film appearances. She's more remembered for being that woman who became famous in Paris or the banana dance lady. Um, and, and But whenever she's evoked, people inevitably have, you know, will play images from her movies, but not really thinking super deeply about the movies themselves, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and you said in the last segment that uh, she was not keen on being in the movies. How did she end up in them, if that was true? Yeah, well, she was no, she was excited to take them on. She just didn't enjoy it in retrospect. Um. Um, yeah, so like in the in the late 20s, you know, she's approached in her dressing room I believe it was by um you know by her manager and folks who are excited to um to capitalize on her fame and bring her into this new medium but once she's doing it she writes in her memoirs that she finds that it's a little bit boring she's doing the same things that she does on stage she people haven't translated the script for her so that she could you know know what's Fully what's happening and um, and she's also going to the set after her performances at the theater so she's tired and um, so she just didn't enjoy it and then in the sound films she says that she found being in films cold and she likes and prefers the warmth of live performance where there's a theater I mean, an audience, you know, responding to you rather than what she said was kind of the coldness of the camera and being on set and the repetitions and stuff. And, and being able to interact in some ways with uh, with her audience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you know, that warmth of having an audience laugh with you and, you know, just having the breathing in the room. It's, I mean, it's a little bit like what you were talking about at the top of the show in your intro about uh, movies and that there is something nice about the convenience of streaming 
And, but we, I think a lot of us are missing that togetherness of laughing at the same time, hearing other people's breathing, not being afraid of their breathing. And, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that, that warmth is really special and rare, something that we share in a theatrical space. You know, you mentioned almost parenthetically um, Josephine Baker's work in Europe. Was she more successful in Europe than in the U.S.? Yes, I mean, she when she her when she was performing in the U.S. in the early twenties, she was just starting out. Um, she was loved and appreciated um the press called her the lightning of jazz um she often wow that's quite a comment (laughs) right (laughs) and and she was really appreciated as um as a for her physical comedy you know for being a um for being a well i think of her as like this comedic auteur in the dance world But, of course, when she goes to Paris, she's on a different stage. You know, when she's in the U.S., she's performing in segregated vaudeville. And there's a certain amount of success that she is experiencing. And but when which is the basis for her being chosen to go to Paris or being invited to go to Paris. But when you you know, it's like when you go to Paris, you're on a different stage, you know, so bigger things can happen to you. And one of the things that happens to her is that even though she's doing this similar move to what she was doing in the U.S., her audiences are seeing it in a totally different way. She's not just a comedy dancer, even though that was awesome. She's now this revelation of blackness because people are seeing her in the in this colonialist context they're seeing her with jazz musicians with the new um, or new to them artifacts that people are bringing back from Africa. Um, They're seeing her, um, you know, kind of as this representation of what becomes known as the primitive. You know, when we talk about Josephine Baker and her work in the U S and, and her work in Europe, I can't help thinking about Eartha Kitt. Mm, yeah. Because Eartha yeah. Kitt did much better overseas than she did in the States, and some of that was because she was a little outspoken. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that that's probably, that's probably true. And she's also someone who was both in the movies or in in media, but also performing as a live entertainer um, to to support her career. Um, there's a young scholar, amazing, Philana Payton, who's writing about Eartha Kitt and Lena Horne and sort of the, some of these other kind of black women performers. And what she says is that being in the movies in the U.S. particularly was not a sustainable mode for them, um, even though they were stars, they couldn't. They were not stars in the same way as their white counterparts. So their careers in Europe and their careers performing as singers was the way that they sustained themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, this is this is fascinating. Now, now see, you've got me wanting to, uh, you know, find (laughs) find all the the Josephine Baker YouTube stuff I can find, and you know, catch myself up a little bit. Excellent. And, of course, you know, thanks to COVID-19, I have time to, to learn and and, uh, and get to know uh, performers that maybe I'm not as familiar with. And yeah. and this is a great, uh, you just opened up a whole new adventure for me, Terry. This is great. Oh. Um, That's, I'm an, I am a teacher, and, uh, and I love this topic. It, it is an, a window into... So many, uh, like Baker herself is an interesting topic. Like the more you you learn about her, the more you want to learn about her. Um, But then she's also part of this really interesting constellation of other um, glamorous, somewhat exotic, really fierce and intelligent and perceptive artists who are working with in a really weird and difficult context, you know, that doesn't, that's like interested in their work kind of, but is also like, yeah, but you're talking a lot. And also you're making us uncomfortable with your political criticisms. Um, so it's, you know, like Lena Horne, for example, when she performed in her films, when I look at her, the whole movie to me is about Lena Horne and whatever she's doing. But in fact, her characters were designed to be able to be removed from the plot when censors, particularly those like in the South and the segregated South didn't want her presence in the movie. So she, so that's, you know, so she's kind of a star. (laughs) Well, it's kind of interesting because even, you know, when I watch stormy weather, um, all of her performances are close-ups. There aren't a lot of other people. It doesn't, it doesn't even interact with the story very much. It's just all of a sudden. That's it. We, what's that? No, I said that's it. That's why. We all of a sudden we cut to Lena Horne and this great production and great song, and then right. it's back to the movie. It's 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 almost like a, like a separate interlude, and I hadn't realized exactly why that was. Yeah, no, that's it. And I'm actually even just looking at the poster now. She is the largest figure on the poster. She's clearly being used to sell the film. And yet <laughs> she's, um, you know, she is um, uh, extractable and somewhat superfluous to it. I, I, you know, I had just never realized that. And, and again, this is, this mm. is great. That's that's one of the reasons why I love having conversations with teachers, especially uh, experts in in a particular area like black film. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you. This is uh, yeah. This is a great deal <laughs> of fun, and and this is just kind of parenthetical to our conversation, or maybe not. Sure. Um, I was actually surprised to read that there's a black film center and archive at Indiana University. I was not aware of that. Yeah. How long has that been there? In existence? Yeah. yeah it's um, since 1981. Wow. You can believe that. Yeah, it was founded by um, Phyllis Klotman, Dr. Phyllis Klotman, who was an English professor in the Department of Afro-American Studies. And she took on the problem of 
um, not having access to early films by African-Americans um, and, um, and wanting to create a place where that could happen um, and where those films could be collected and preserved and shared. Was there a center somewhere um, mm-hmm. the way Hollywood evolved for filmmaking that was specifically for black filmmakers and black productions? Was there a black Hollywood? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, Lena Horne, who you mentioned, is part of that. Um, Dorothy Dandridge, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier. Um, and there and there was... Um, uh, their collection is part of our collection now, but the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame um, was established in the 1970s as an organization that would celebrate um, the contributions of of African Americans to, you know, to Hollywood and to the entertainment industry in general. So definitely, and we know when Baker's film Siren of the Tropics um, debuted in the U.S in 1929 the hope among the black press was that she would inaugurate or launch um you know a black presence in hollywood and of course it didn't turn out that way the film you know wasn't successful here and um and you know you were asking earlier like about just like comparing her success in the u.s and in the and in europe and and it's true that she was successful in those early years of her career in ways that I think we need to, you know, recognize more. But it's also the case that when she would return to the U.S. in, I think it was 1936, 37, it was really disappointing and frustrating. She was not getting the same star treatment that she was getting in France. People seemed, well, from her perspective, People did not seem to enjoy her, like, the glamour that she had developed. They wanted her to play a smaller part. Um, And she just felt minimized and poorly treated. So there, so she, I think she was, like, this one figure who could have inaugurated the kind of glamour that you see in, uh, Dorothy Dandridge's um, films, but you know, but she didn't. She didn't feel welcomed back, and then her films weren't that successful. Was it considered a a responsibility by successful black artists and professionals, I suppose, for that matter, to mm-hmm. to speak truth to power? That's, I think that's a long-standing debate, you know, and people take that up very differently. I mean, you mentioned um, that they, Josephine Baker spoke at the, uh, at the march in Washington in yeah. 1963. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some, some people would say, you know, I've got a good thing going. I don't want to mess it up. But, right. but yet we see people like Josephine Baker and Harry Belafonte and and others, mm-hmm. um, Eartha Kitt, yeah. that you know said, "No, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell it like it is." Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, and those are the people, I think, you know, that we tend to remember. Um, I think when I... That's interesting, I, isn't it? Yeah, it really <laughs> is. It really is. In the end, they, I mean, they took these risks um, to expand democracy for all of us, right, by, you know, by making their criticisms. I do feel like I want to be um, just really patient with the ways that all of these actors, whether they spoke out in ways that we remember or that we never heard about or that they may never have done, is that they're, they're dealing with harm on all sides. They're dealing, they're coming out. I mean, when you're talking about like performers in the 1920s, we're just, you know, 40, 50 years outside of slavery. Like, yeah, like right. actual slavery, <laughs> you know, so like it's there, um, there, if they're, if someone is cautious, I think that makes sense. Um, and of course with reconstruction being abandoned shortly after emancipation, they are also dealing with the locking down of the Jim Crow laws, um, Anything can be vagrancy. Looking at someone the wrong way can lead to a lynching. Um, black towns being burned. Um, so there, people are living in a deeply violent time. I, there's something I really love about the risk of making yourself visible and of deciding to be creative um, in, in times like that, like being on stage by yourself. Um, is is brave, and yet I think you know I think that w- people handle that differently. Um, Lena Horne was a great performer in her films, outside of the films, and it, but it wasn't until she was um, you know in midlife and past midlife that she begins to talk about her experiences in um, in stormy weather. And she, she talks about kind of gaining inspiration and strength from young people, from the activism of the 60s, and that that gave her a kind of sense of courage and of home. But she also says, you know, I was always aware that these pe- that the industry couldn't take away whatever was black in her or you know her tr- like what she felt was valuable or her culture she um and she never she never lived in hollywood she never gave in in a certain sense even though we see her performing within a hollywood um framework Um, but other performers really wanted to be a part of it and maybe tragically so. Um, it's, it's, it's a, such a difficult line to walk. Um, and I think in studying the lives of these women in particular, someone like Josephine Baker, we can appreciate the complexity. I want to ask you about that title that Mm -hmm. I keep fumbling, Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism. Sure. Given the fact that that she didn't reflect um, very fondly about her roles in in uh, the cinema, um, mm-hmm. 
why that title? Well, I am a film scholar, and I have a job to do, and that job is uh, illuminating film histories. So my study of Baker was always going to focus on her films, especially because they're so under-recognized. And I, right. I found that in her writings, that the, or, and in writings about her, there wasn't a lot of attention to what she thought about her film. The PRISM, P-R-I-S-M, image allows us to have multiple experiences, multiple perspectives that are all true at the same time. This was a triumph. I think she's great in these films. There's actually no other reason to watch them besides <laughs> the fact that she's in them. <laughs> you know, funny. she's a really, yeah, she's a great, strong presence. Um, and yet there's, um, it's important to take account of her experiences of these roles, the, the limits of the narratives she performed in. Um, I mean, it's amazing. This woman moved to France as a 19-year-old, learned French, and then is performing in French, as the star of the movie. Like that's, that's remarkable. <laughs> it right? is remarkable. Like, and it's, yeah. And she's, and, and it's a lot of, a lot of lines. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it that I felt, you know, I was like, I, I, I hear you, Josephine. Yes. Um, but I think, I think I need her as like, I need her presence in film history. And she was just always that missing figure. When you look at all the people that we've cited, they're all citing Josephine Baker. Well, and, and you identify her as uh, holding monumental significance for African-American cinema as the first truly global yeah. black woman film star. I thought that was a, a, a very telling uh, description. Mm -hmm. uh, the book is called Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism. I wanted to make sure I said it at least twice correctly. Um, <laughs> it's written by Terry Simone Francis, who teaches film studies uh, courses and directs the Black Film Center and Archive at Indiana University. Um, I, I, Terry, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but we're just about <laughs> out of time, and I always want to sure. give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. This door really, or this book really does open the door to uh, film history, heritage, um, mm -hmm. just a lot of uh, interesting things. Do you have a website that you could recommend? I, um, you mean, my, I, there's my own website, Terry Francis, Ph.D., um, the Black Film Center has a website. Um, if you Google BFCA and Indiana University, that will take you right there. Um, I, I mean, I could spotlight um, the Wexner Center for the Arts. I'll be speaking there tonight with filmmaker uh, Jatavia Gary about the, what it means to engage, um, I suppose, a fraught um, historical archive and an incomplete unfinished one um, as scholars and as artists and what it means to kind of restore. Um, it's a, it's a well, film festival that starts tonight about revivals and restoration. Well, Terry stuff. Francis, we have to end it there, but it's been okay. a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I'll tell you a story about my boss, Sheldon Leonard. Sheldon Leonard, uh, this, is a, this is a true story. Sheldon Leonard is a man that hired me for high spy. He brought me up to his office. He said, I want you to be a spy. I said, okay. So we signed a contract and the series was on. Was it? I don't complicate anything, man. <laughs> so, uh, Sheldon was married a long time ago, probably before there was hair. <laughs> he's an old bugger. He's, a, he's really old, Duke. And uh, he took his wife on a honeymoon up to Niagara Falls, and this was when Niagara Falls was brand new. Uh, they didn't even give you a raincoat or nothing, you know. You just stood there, you got wet, and you came down, you smiled at each other, you know. And he said, he tells this story. He said, it was very cold that day, but the following morning, the sun came out and it shone brightly. And the temperature went up to 99. So I said to my bride, bride, why don't we take a little dip in the wonderful lake? And his bride looked at us, yes, shall. Yeah, they talk a lot. I believe we should. And he did. Went forth, put on his bathing suit, his beautiful body, which has since gone bad on him. And he went stepping with his little 4'11 wife. Frankie's beautiful, she's just 4'11, just built like regular little wife. And he went walking, got to the edge of the lake, and it was 99 out. And he said, my dear, I believe I shall take a plunge. That's the way they used to talk in the old days. You know, they, you had to tell your wife everything you were going to do. You know, even if she was standing there looking at you, you know. My dear, I believe I will walk to this board. Do it, do it. I said, are you with me? She said, yes, Sheldon, I'm with you. And he went up and he hit the diving board. And he did soar into the air. Up, 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 forming a great swan dive. Yes. <laughs> now, we will pause a second, leave our hero stranded in the air. We'll hold him, don't worry about it, he won't drop, he's still up there. And we will say, he is about to plunge into a what, lake? Uh-huh. And how do you get lake water? Well, usually what happens is the water runs down from the mountain. Yes, and how do you get it? Maybe the snow will melt. Right. Does it ever really get hot? No. And so he is about to dive into what? Twelve degrees. Now we pick up our hero at the peak of his swan. And he is now descending and he's coming down and boosh, he hit the water. And immediately he said, my body turned into a giant goose pimple. <laughs> and as I submerged, 
my eyes would not close because they too wanted to know what had hit them. My body began to drop into a ball. I touched bottom, thank goodness, and pushed up. And as my head broke through the water, I was facing my wife about 30 feet away from her. And she stood there smiling. And I said to myself, why should I tell her? Said I gathered every inch, every muscle, and I smiled. And I said to her, come on in, dear. The water's fine. And she hit the board and made a great swan. And when she came down, the tips of her fingers touched the water. And she made one of the greatest hand walks across the lake any man has ever seen and stood on the other side and yelled great obscenities to me. So that's Sheldon's play. Thank you. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Oh 
before I begin now. Hey, little darling, said I got you.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 